Over the course of the pandemic, the patient populations seeking behavioral health services have become increasingly complex. As both residents and staff are trying to better understand the lingering effects of social isolation, trauma, and stress tied to COVID. Staff education and continuity remains key, but that can be easier said than done when some in the long-term care industry are facing crisis-level staffing. Dr. Wayne Tasker has worked in the behavioral health field for more than 25 years, specializing in the treatment of geriatric patients for 15 years. Dr. Tasker currently serves as the National Director of Behavioral Health for Team Health. Dr. Richard Thompson Jr. currently serves as Team Health's Behavioral Health Medical Director in post-acute care. His practice since 2014 has focused on psychiatric care in nursing homes and assisted living facilities. I spoke with Dr. Tasker and Dr. Thompson on the key challenges facing providers and how SNFs are uniquely positioned to facilitate behavioral health services. This episode of Rethink is brought to you by Team Health. Before we get to that interview, I wanted to promote our in-person Rethink conference happening on September 1st in Chicago. Hosted by Skilled Nursing News, Rethink is the premier skilled nursing event dedicated to trends, challenges, and the future of the industry. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com events for the latest updates on the conference and our other scheduled events. Alrighty, Dr. Tasker and Dr. Thompson, this question is for you both. Define behavioral health as it applies to post-acute facilities and communities. Dr. Tasker, why don't you take it away? All right, well, let's also talk about the term behavioral health. Behavioral health encompasses quite a bit. What happened is that used to, that term used to be mental health you know, services. It used to be the, the mental health type things. And what, what happened over time is it evolved into, it was not just the typical psychiatric problems that people were facing. What they were finding is there was people with, with psychiatric problems, but also who had a lot of behavior issues that were associated with that. So what happened is we looked at the whole person, the emotional side and the behavioral side. What we begin to realize is that we expanded that term. So behavioral health now encompasses a much greater field. It, it involves the behaviors of these people, the way that they feel, the emotional aspect. And it's a, a combination of both now. So behavioral health is basically when people are, when there's some kind of impairment, psychiatric or behavioral, that keeps them from functioning in a normal way in their normal life that we become involved in that. And that's both community and facilities and anywhere. You know, it's really expanded out to look more at that whole person as opposed to just the the mental and the emotional part. There's a behavioral aspect to it too. So when you look at behavioral health, you're looking at the entire person and those issues are impeding the way that they're functioning day to day. Go ahead and answer, Dr. Thompson. Sure. Well, yeah, I was thinking as you were speaking, I think you've addressed it very well. The The other uh, uh, thing I was thinking about is our behavioral health, our, our whole aspect of that affects how we handle stress, how we're going to interact with others, and particularly when, when we're looking at, at folks that are in uh, post-acute facilities, it, it affects decision-making. You know, if someone is particularly uh, depressed, feeling hopeless about their situation, it's going to affect uh, how they're making decisions. Uh, an obvious one is uh, making decisions about a uh, code status. 
and uh, whether someone's going to be uh, full code or do not resuscitate. So that, that's just an obvious one, but there's all sorts of decisions medically that can be affected. Uh, that's just one small part of how behavioral health really will affect how we interact in the uh, post-acute facility. Absolutely. Now I'll ask you, Dr. Thompson, this question first. What are some of the key challenges providers are facing in regards to behavioral health? Wow, Uh, that's uh, hard to (laughs) nail down. There are a lot of challenges. Some of them we'll discuss a little bit later on uh, that have been going on the last couple of years. But just in general, providers are faced with dealing with individuals who are traumatized by uh, when they come into the facility. For example, most folks, uh, residents who are admitted, come in from hospitalization. And when they enter, they've been through something very difficult already. They were at home. They've had some medical issues, some accidents, something. They've been through a trauma of being in the hospital, separated from loved ones, from routines. Then they come into another facility where they maybe were hoping they would uh, be at home sooner. And and that's quite a frequent uh, concern that I come across is people are anxious to get home and they're frustrated with being there. And that spills over into their interactions uh, with physicians, healthcare providers, and with uh, staff uh, in, in the nursing home. We are under a lot of as, as providers, there are a lot of guidelines that we have that have increased over the years. You know, I've been in practice for 30 years, and over those years, there's been a lot of requirements that have just increased over time, and it's, it's very different than when we practiced several years ago. Uh, that doesn't mean that many of these guidelines are not good, but it does make it more uh, complex, for example, in the, particularly in the nursing home. Uh, when we're trying to uh, provide behavioral health services. Uh, Dr. Tasker, anything you wanted to add to that? Let me just dovetail a couple of things that really hit post-acute in particular is populations within facilities has changed dramatically. We have, you know, all kinds of very chronically mentally ill. We have the, the homeless that have been mentally ill now coming into facilities. We've got younger people that with drug addiction issues the patient mix has really put a challenge to the behavioral health providers and the, the facilities trying to manage them. And on top of that, let's just be honest, this pandemic has caused a, a major crisis, not only in the patient population, but in staffing and being able to work with these people. So it's just, it's a new reality that's very difficult. And I think that's the biggest challenge is how do you deal with this overall situation of, of change and stress that has happened over the past couple of years and just dovetail that on top of the problems we already had even before the pandemic. So that's one of the biggest challenges that I see. And in talking about the challenges, uh, now we can talk a little bit more about approaches. Dr. Tasker, what approaches should providers take to address some of these challenges that you both discussed? I think the big thing, number one thing is to understand you know, your own, first of all, be, be aware of your own stress level and your own needs, because a lot of providers that are trying to deal with this are themselves burned out. They have a, they have a lot of issues that they've had to deal with and changes that they've had to suffer with. So number one is to, 
to make sure that the providers themselves are taking care of themselves and able to deliver the services that they need because that's that's a major part of that. And the other thing is is really education. In, in post-acute in particular, you know, with staff turnover and all these changes that are happening, you know, we really need to, to make sure we educate and give providers and staff that are working with these, these residents, you know, the tools that they need. Without that, that's what causes more problems because you can create your problems just by not having the correct education. So to me, that's one of the major deals is the providers to understand where they're at and to take care of themselves and to also recognize that same need in the caretakers in facilities and at home. Dr. Thompson? I think you covered it, yeah. Absolutely. And Dr. Thompson, what do you think are some good approaches to to medication management for behavioral health? I was thinking about this question and, you know, there's two different ways uh, I get referrals in a uh, facility for a, a new resident for me to see. Uh, one is is when they're admitted new to the building, and typically either they are uh, already on psychiatric medications or there are concerns that perhaps psychiatric medications could be of benefit or there's some sort of behavioral disturbance. The other referral is for individuals who are already residents in the building, maybe for a few weeks or maybe even for a few years and something has changed. So part of it depends on on how the referral comes. If someone is new to the building and already on a, a psychiatric medication, I will assess what that med- best that I can, what that medication was initiated for originally, what has been the response, are there any adverse effects, how appropriate is this medication to utilize. As I mentioned earlier, a lot of our uh, individuals who are new admissions come from the hospital. And quite frequently, there are medical and psychiatric issues that occur. Uh, Common ones uh, are delirium, and and that involves a lot of uh, cognitive and behavioral disturbance frequently. And individuals will be started on a psychiatric medicine in the hospital that they continue when they come to the uh, nursing home. Well, they may have been started on a medication such as an antipsychotic at the nursing home, or excuse me, at the hospital, and uh, now they're at the nursing home for rehab, and the problems that were occurring at the hospital are not occurring now. Well, that medicine probably does not need to continue very long at all, and we'll work to try to reduce that. Something that is as uh, important in the nursing home uh, are, are gradual dose reductions. Those are federally mandated to to be looked at and attempted if clinically appropriate. And and so taking someone off a medicine that, that's not indicated, no longer necessary, is, is important because those medicines have adverse effects that can affect health and cogn- uh, cognition. The um, other part of that is folks that come in who are there short term for rehabilitation and perhaps have been on psychiatric medications at home that had been helpful to them. I, in general, try not to change those and as as I'd say, rock the boat, because we're trying to focus in on the rehab so they can get better and get home. And I don't want to disturb anything uh, that's going to create difficulties for them to accomplish that goal. And so they can return home. So 
I'm reluctant to make changes uh, on those kinds of medications unless someone is experiencing adverse effects or new symptoms that we do need to address. Now, the other group of individuals are, are the ones who have been in the facility and they have new symptoms. And we need to try to take a look at, at what's causing that because not all psychiatric or behavioral changes require psychiatric medication. So uh, we always want to use a non-pharmacologic approach if we can. But if we find that, yes, medication is going to be important, then we try to use the lowest dose try and, and medicines that are going to be less likely to impede cognition and, and create adverse effects because most of our individuals in long-term care are on multiple medications. There are reasons why they're there and quite frequently they have multiple health problems and we don't want to add to that. So we try to minimize any medications, but when they're absolutely necessary, uh, go ahead and use them at doses that are going to be helpful. We try to start low and work our way up, but we want to give the best symptom relief that we can achieve while avoiding uh, adverse effects. Gotcha. Gotcha. Now, Dr. Tasker, we can look at this a little bit more broadly. What disciplines are options for behavioral health services in post-acute facilities and communities? Okay, let's, let's talk about the, the structure in the way that I feel is more ideal. Usually on the medication management of the psychotropic drugs, you have a, a psychiatric nurse practitioner or a PA with psych experience supervised by a psychiatrist. So the psychiatrist is basically the monitor for the online nurse practitioners that provide the actual med management in facilities and in the any place that they work. And they, they basically manage that medication side. And especially when you're looking at gradual dose reductions in those psychotropic medications. And then on the other side, the non-pharmaceutical side, the Psychologist and LCSWs provide the talk therapy, the psychotherapy, as a means to maybe not have to rely so much on the medications that sometimes you can just actually help them with their coping mechanisms through the talk therapy. So what you would look for if you were looking for the ideal situation is psych MPs on the ground managing the meds in a dyad relationship with a psychologist or an LCSW doing the talk therapy. And that way, the ones that, that usually the gold standard in our field is a little above. If they're positive, they cognitively can benefit from the talk therapy. We definitely want them involved in that. And if not, they can have to have the med management. But that's what you really would, what we would be looking for is in terms of what the structure would look like in a behavioral health format. I see. Okay. And so this question is for you both. Uh, and I'll start with Dr. Thompson here. How often should residents expect to see these specialists in facilities now that we've kind of talked about the structure of it all? Sure. Well, let me say there's nothing uh, written in stone about this. Uh, so I'll give kind of general guidelines what I usually do myself and what when working with uh, other providers, what I usually recommend. In nursing homes and long-term care, the majority of the individuals have multiple health problems. They're on multiple medications. Uh, they typically have cognitive impairment. Not everyone, but a lot of our individuals in nursing homes have some type of cognitive impairment that makes it difficult for them to share symptoms. 
although we have uh, good staff in a lot of our long-term care facilities and skilled nursing, there's a lot of turnover also in these care facilities. So consistency can be uh, challenging as far as care being provided by individuals that, that the resident can get used to and familiar with. So having said that, I usually, as relative to what I typically did in the past in follow-ups in an office setting, I tend to see individuals probably more frequently than I did in the office for all those reasons. They're on multiple medications. They have difficulty communicating. There's often uh, cognition uh, difficulties, and, and so they have difficulty sharing symptoms and how they're how they're feeling, any adverse effects they might be having. So we have to be detectives sometimes as providers uh, in long-term care. So uh, whereas uh, I might in an office, and then this varies from provider to provider, but in an office, someone's stable, I'm not planning and they're benefiting from this. I'm not planning on making any changes right now because it would put them at risk of of uh, symptoms getting worse. If I was in an office, I might see someone once every three months or so. In the uh, long-term care facility, though, I may see them without any changes every month and a half or so, plan on seeing them because of all those reasons. Their medical changes occur. Non-psychiatric medications are changed by primary providers, uh, depending on the health status. So I will tend to see them more often. If I make a medication change, I will plan on seeing someone the next time I'm in the building. So uh, if I go on a weekly basis, then I'm seeing them uh, the next week, acknowledging and recognizing that psychiatric medicines often take longer to be fully effective. Antidepressant medicines, two, four, six weeks at any one dose to see the full benefit. Uh, we all understand that. But I want to know if they're having any adverse effects or difficulties. And, and many of these folks don't always share that with nurses or their primary physician, whereas uh, other individuals in the community might be better at suited to doing that. So I have to go in and ask questions about that. So uh, that's why I do that. So other times that, that we see uh, individuals uh, we haven't talked about, I did briefly mention about gradual dose reductions uh, being federally mandated to look at. Pharmacy uh, will uh, often generate uh, requests to look at medicines for reductions based on those federal guidelines. And so that would be an in a time when I would go in and see someone sooner than later, see them at that visit to address that. That doesn't mean that I must or we must decrease the medicine, but we need to look at it. And if it's appropriate, try to reduce that medicine. Uh, if it's not appropriate, then uh, I need to document why it is not appropriate. So that is kind of the guidelines and how I determine how often I see individuals. And I guess the main message is in a long-term care facility, I think for a prescriber, we're going to see someone more often than we would in the community for all those reasons I laid out. Yeah, on the psychotherapy side, the talk therapy, it's number one, if they're, they're deemed cognitively able to benefit, you know, it can be as, as often as weekly, it can be as unoften as biweekly. 
But one thing that I do want to stress here is it's based on the individual needs and the, and the issues that were being addressed at the time. But one thing that, that I really want to emphasize is if somebody's being seen for psychotherapy once every 30 days or once every 60 days, that's really not beneficial in psychotherapy. And that's something that I think people need to understand that it has to be an ongoing present issue that you're working on and not just, and this is very important, just a, a maintenance visit where you come in and just see how they're doing. That's not the, the goal. And I think it's been something that has been confused over the years that you really have to have an ongoing current psychiatric condition that you're working with in therapy. So I, I think weekly, biweekly, you know, that's usually the standard for how often you would see these people in true, you know, talk therapy and psychotherapy. Gotcha. And so how are SNFs uniquely positioned to facilitate behavioral health services, Dr. Thompson? Sure. That's a good question because they definitely are. I, I was thinking about individuals that I've seen who come into a skilled nursing facility, as an example, who had been on, started on, let's say, an antidepressant uh, 10 years ago when they had a family member pass away and they had depressive symptoms and perhaps a, a primary physician uh, started them on an antidepressant. Symptoms improved and, and they've been on it ever since. They had never had any problems with depression before, perhaps, but they've just continued it. Well, one of the things that can occur is we can take a look at, well, is this medicine still necessary? I always hate to see individuals who are chronically on any medicine, but particularly psychiatric medicines that, frankly, at this point, serve no purpose. And uh, yet the person's presented to all the potential adverse effects. So, and, and that's not an infrequent occurrence that I see. So it allows me, the fact that they've come into a, a skilled nursing facility, it allows me to have a conversation with them about appropriateness of continuing that medication or perhaps trying to reduce it. And I've had many of those uh, conversations. But other things that skilled nursing facilities afford for behavioral health is, is to give that uh, introduction to uh, behavioral health where they may not have had it before. A lot of folks I see, you know, older individuals come from a, a generation where uh, psychiatric care was not looked on with favor. I mean, it's not been that many years ago that uh, individuals who were hospitalized psychiatrically in the quote unquote asylum lost their civil rights, you know, things that they could normally do like vote. And that, that, that only changed really in the 60s. And, but a lot of our individuals still remember those kinds of things, the stigma that's associated with, with it. Well, when I'm able to come in and give a discussion and say, I'm a psychiatrist, it, it's not nearly as scary because hopefully to most individuals, I'm not scary when I come in. And, and, and we can have a, a good discussion about how things are going for them, the medicines that they're taking, the feelings that they're having. And so many times uh, I've had individuals say that, you know, you're the, the one place I can really have a discussion about how I'm feeling. You know, I can share what I'm feeling about because everyone else is pretty busy. They're all coming in with a specific task 
you know, and busy doing that. And then they're getting called out to do something else. So it's busy, busy, busy. And I can come in and spend some time with them and just let them talk. And I can gain a lot of information from just listening, let alone uh, interacting with them. So that is is one of the, the areas that I think is, is really uh, important and how skilled nursing uh, is really uniquely positioned. I did want to say the other thing that facilities are able to do are screenings. You know, folks that are home could suffer with depression or anxiety and and not really know what to do. Maybe they have a doctor they go to, maybe they don't. But they come into a facility, they've got symptoms, and it's quite common in uh, skilled nursing that that uh, screenings are done, whether it's a, a dementia screening, whether it's a depression screening, those things are done. And if if the scores suggest perhaps either depression or uh, dementia symptoms, then a referral can be made. And even for in, uh, facilities that don't have psychiatric or psychological services available in that building, it does allow primary care to look at options of treating, whereas these individuals may not had uh, the opportunity for that kind of treatment. So uh, it, it does uh, give the opportunity for that interaction. Yes. Now let's switch gears just a little bit here. You both have spoken a little bit about the pandemic, and obviously there's a lot that has changed uh, since we were back in March of 2020. But let's talk a little bit about what has changed relative to behavioral health needs during the pandemic. Dr. Tasker, we'll start with you. All right. Let me let me say that what's what's really been evident is the amount of trauma. There is a Lord, large amount of, of trauma that has occurred because of the pandemic. And the, you know, the federal standards now is that when people come into long-term care facilities, especially skilled nursing facilities, they have to screen for trauma, which tells you that even the government's realizing that a lot of their, their residents have been traumatized just by the isolation and all the changes and the fear that it goes along with this pandemic. And it's produced what I call the it's silent sufferers. These are people that these are residents that are no don't exhibit any behaviors. They don't really show any kind of problems, but they're basically depressed and wasting away in their room. And this is what I've seen more and more of that, you know, there's people who have been affected who norm, and people who normally didn't have any problems, who didn't have any depression or anxiety have now created it. So there's a brand new wave of depressions and anxieties that have happened in these facilities because a result of the pandemic. I think about it, the best example I can use of that is I think, you know, when it was first in 2020, when it first hit and a resident could not leave his room literally for meals or to talk to the family, that is incredibly traumatizing. And, you know, those effects are just now being felt now we're getting the residual effect of that trauma that is manifesting now. So that's been the new challenge for the, the nurse, nursing homes or any skilled facility. Even in the community, you can see this. And because of this new wave of trauma, depression, and anxieties, it's caused a new reality that we have to, to get involved. And this is the key. Early intervention is important. The sooner you can recognize and identify these problems, the quicker you're going to be able to help stabilize them and not let them 
morph into more chronic, serious conditions. So that's been the major change that I've seen as a result of the pandemic and how it's affected everybody in long-term care. Dr. Thompson? Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more on that, how it's had this adverse impact on residents uh, in the facilities. But I wanted to take a little bit of a different angle and how it's affected providers. You know, in the old days, which weren't all that long ago, two years ago or so, we would go into a room, for example, interview, speak with the patient, sit next to them and, and be able to interact in what I would say is relatively normal uh, fashion. Then when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden we're wearing masks. We might be wearing shields on our faces. We may be wearing gowns and gloves. I mean, we look like something from outer space when we come in. That is very different. Our individuals in the home, uh, in the long-term care and skilled nursing, they frequently are hard of hearing anyway. So trying to hear through a mask and through a shield is very challenging. Uh, Folks that are hard of hearing depend on looking at lip and mouth movements. And and that is totally taken away with masks. So it's had a, a, a significant effect on providers also. Every time you would go out in and out of a room, depending on the precautions that have been set, you might need to gown up and, and glove up and, and shield up. And, and that's time consuming. And then you've got to undo that process when you come back out. That had an, an impact on our providers also to where it was difficult to interact. And my experience was Nonverbal cues are very important in in the work that we do. I think Dr. Tasker will, will agree with that. And yeah. and when our faces are all covered up, uh, we can't do that. And uh, I'm thankful that precautions, things are changing, and precautions are being relaxed just from the standpoint of behavioral health, so that we're able to interact at a little bit more of a normal capacity and uh, people can pick up on a few of those cues. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense why the nonverbal communication would be so important and why certainly, you know, when you are wearing a mask, that, that makes it increasingly difficult to to achieve that. And so, you know, more generally, what should SNFs know about behavioral health services today that may have changed in recent years? Dr. Tasker, if you want to start with that one. Well, the big thing is the we're looking for, and I think this is the big thing, is the interventions not depending and not relying on just medication. I really think one of the changes that's happened with this pandemic is we really need to get focused on getting to know our residents better, the providers, to have a, a close relationship with them because not everybody needs medication to solve problems. And I think that's been one of the, finally, I'm seeing a, a change in that, that you know, one of the regulations that the, the federal government has also put on there is that you have to to show that you try something, some intervention, a non-pharmaceutical intervention before you go straight to medication. And to me, this is a positive change that came of the pandemic. We're beginning to look at the person as are there other means of changing the environment or changing the interactions or relationships before we just automatically go to you know a medication regime. 
And I think this is one of the, the, the good things that has come out of the, the pandemic is we're looking more at the person and being more creative in how we, we treat them. And I think that's one of the things that facilities are going to see more and more of, that they need to find ways to foster those relationships with their residents, to foster interventions, to teach their staff how to, to manage the behaviors without always moving to first-line medications. And that's, that's a, to me, a direct result of, of the, this pandemic because we've seen that relationships and those interventions are crucial to the well-being of these residents. And I think that's one of the things that has changed as a result of that. I wanted to add about how things may have changed in recent years. I think that behavioral health services availability in facilities has increased overall. Uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, behavioral health services in long-term care, I think would have been a, on a consistent structured basis would have been rare. I think it was more of what I experienced working in the community uh, was primary care physician who had a patient in the nursing home. They were having some difficulties and they would ask me to go by and see them. And so I would go address that and consult and make some recommendations. But as far as ongoing follow-up that and, and, and certainly having companies uh, who did that, 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 that just was not really heard of, at least in the area of the country that I was in. Now this is much, much more common. So availability of behavioral health services in facilities has increased dramatically. And so I think that's a, a really good thing that we uh, have that and uh, has been a positive change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Dr. Tasker, what can SNPs expect from behavioral health services being provided in their facilities? I think the most important thing is they should expect consistency. And I really use that word strongly, you know, that one of the problems with some behavioral health, you know, in buildings is it's not consistent. It's very important that these providers show up on a regular basis. They develop a relationship with their facilities and that the facility can count on them because one of the things that causes crisis is inconsistency. A lot of times our crises are could be prevented if somebody was just consistently providing the services in the behavioral health realm as, as they say they are. Because that's, that's what I've seen the most. I think you need to expect people to be in your building, at least on a weekly basis. They need to be interacting with the staff. They need to interact with the, the behavioral health, they need to interact with the medical side. And I think that's the key. The key is to expect your behavioral health providers to be consistent, to have a schedule, and to work with them on a regular basis rather than just trying to do crisis management. You know, being proactive and knowing these residents and being ahead of the game is going to be the key to be success. So that's exactly what I think any facility or any long-term care, you know, facility should expect from their behavioral health provider. Absolutely. And so what are some key considerations around telehealth and behavioral health? I know telehealth has been a, a hot topic, especially with COVID. <laughs> I'll give you my two cents first, and I'll let Dr. Thompson chime in. I think the problem with telehealth is when you look at behavioral health, our, our job is so relationship-oriented 
that it's hard to get a, an intimate relationship and to see social cues when you're on a screen. And I think that's where we miss sometimes. I mean, sometimes you have to have it and you have no choice. And, and it's probably really beneficial in, in a crisis when somebody's not available, you know, physically. But I think the problem with telehealth in our realm is we rely a lot on those, those interpersonal relationships, you know, nonverbal cues, you know, watching behaviors and, and facial that you can't always get on the screen. I think that's one of the limitations of that. And secondly, realistically, it is hard for facilities to dedicate staff to run around the screen to go give in front of all these residents. It's very difficult with the short staff, you know, that facilities are, are facing right now to dedicate somebody consistently to run around and do these screens with their, their residents. And I think that's the limitations. I think there's definitely for, for crisis and after hours, I think telehealth has a really good worth in that area. But in terms of my honest opinion, I think it's very, if you can do on ground to have people come and actually have those interactions, you're going to get much better results than relying on telehealth. But I will say this, telehealth is better than having no services. So, you know, if that's the only means you have, then it's still something that, you know, it can be beneficial, especially in these isolated rural areas. Dr. Thompson? Yeah, I absolutely agree with everything that you've said. Yeah, when uh, the pandemic, for example, when the pandemic first hit, we had a lot of providers, uh, behavioral health providers that were not allowed in the buildings. They just let primary providers in. And so the only choice uh, that we had was telehealth. Well, that depends on the availability of staff on the other end to provide the telehealth service. And it greatly reduces the number of individuals that you're practically able to see in a given time. So, so glad that uh, things have opened up. Providers are getting back into buildings. Uh, that That's a, a rare circumstance now that, that we've got uh, behavioral providers who are not able to get back in those buildings. But I absolutely agree with Dr. Tasker about the crisis and after hours. I think telehealth serves real need that probably won't change any time in the future. Uh, and so I'm hopeful that those options will uh, uh, be able to continue. That's all we have for this episode of Rethink. Be sure to visit skillednursingnews.com for the latest insights and industry news and subscribe to Rethink to be notified when new episodes are released. Available now on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Thanks again to Team Health. I'm Jordan Ryland for Skilled Nursing News. Thanks for listening.